Um, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to give you praise and thanks just for your great goodness. You're a big God. We trust you. And God, we're all on this journey together. We're moving forward on this journey together. It's a family. Jesus, you're the pastor of this church. You're the head pastor. You lead this place. God, it's our desire. We just want to be faithful to follow you, to take our cues and our lead from you and to go where you want us to go. And, and Lord, sometimes that requires uh, crossing Jordans that are actually in the highest of flood season. Or that means crossing a Red Sea uh, when all of their options are null and void. And it requires sometimes even stepping out of a boat onto water that's virtually impossible. And yet, God... You call us to take steps of faith because you're a big God that overcomes big things, big obstacles. And so, Lord, we trust you. We trust in you. We trust in your faithfulness in this church. We trust in the fact that, God, you've been faithful to us for 16 and a half years. You're going to continue to be faithful. Lord, it's our desire to just continue to preach the gospel, preach Christ, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and help us to do that. Pray that you help us to do that this morning. Let your word go forth in our hearts and speak to us clearly, loudly, about who Jesus is and how great Jesus is. So help us right now. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 2 says this. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation that was set before me. Though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, he was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers who came in secretly, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them... We did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might, not, might be preserved for you. So I realize we just kind of jumped into a passage of scripture that might feel a little bit disjointed. I want to try to give a little bit of a background on this, because Paul's talking about um, his testimony of how he came to know Jesus and how God rescued him from Paul's own slavery. And Paul was in a slavery that really he didn't know that was a slavery until he met Jesus. The slavery that Paul was in was really a religious moralism. Paul was sort of locked into the traditions of Judaism. And Paul was a, a, a very, very avid preacher of the moralistic traditions of Judaism. And when he saw this sort of a rogue sect of people rise up uh, following Jesus and... Um, Paul was deeply troubled by this because he felt Jesus was sort of uh, somebody that was outside of Judaism. He felt like Jesus kind of defamed the law of God. He felt that Jesus was somebody that shouldn't be trusted. And so all the people that were following Jesus, Paul was very outspoken against them. He wanted to try to bring people arrested and bring them back to Jerusalem. Paul basically hated Christians. And until one day God arrested Paul um, figuratively, not literally, but figuratively on a road, uh, Paul was gripped by God. Paul literally was converted to Christianity. He found out, uh, the reality was that the church that he was persecuting, the church that he was attacking, really was Jesus, and Jesus is God. That was Paul's great revelation, and God, rather than killing Paul, decided to show grace and mercy upon Paul, rather than slam Paul and remove his name from the book of life, decided to put Paul's name in the book of life and save him. 
Paul was changed. He was a changed man. And so now Paul literally went from being a persecutor of Christians and of churches to planting churches and encouraging Christians. I mean, there's no other way to describe Paul's life other than a miracle. And so Paul talks about how he went to Jerusalem to basically talk to the leaders there in Jerusalem, which would be Peter, James, John, um, and to communicate to them about the work that he'd been doing in this Gentile territory. Now, Paul was now an evangelist. Paul was a church planner. Paul was a, a pastor who was taking the gospel into areas that were way outside of cultural Judaism. I mean, we're talking, this was total, complete paganism to the furthest extent. And that's where Paul was now ministering the gospel to these people way out there. And what Paul found was that a lot of these pagan, non-Jewish, Gentile people were getting saved. They were being transformed. Jesus was changing them. Jesus forgave them. Jesus gave them life. And this was blowing Paul's mind. And what Paul was doing was just loving on them. When Paul, at one point, had to leave these churches, and so these guys were basically without Paul's leadership there, there were these other leaders that came in from Jerusalem. Okay? Now, they weren't Peter, James, and John. They were other leaders in the church. And they were basically perverting the message that Paul spoke, and they were also destroying and calling to question the messenger Paul. All right? That's what they were doing. So Paul's writing back, trying to bring a little bit of a defense as to what he had preached to these Gentile people, because what these guys were doing is they were coming in, and rather than just simply preaching Jesus to them, their message was, you need Jesus, plus you need to be circumcised. You need Jesus, plus you need our culture. You need Jesus, plus you need to become a Jew. And so Paul's saying, no, no, no. You guys are deeply troubled. Your minds are basically in great controversy and turmoil, and there's confusion in the churches. What you really need more than anything is Jesus, period. Jesus, period. And to turn away from Jesus to anything else is actually turning away from life itself. And it's turning away into another subtle type of slavery, which we'll look at. So what I want to do is I want to carry on a little bit of the theme that we started last week in trying to look at Paul's life through the lens, through the eyes of what happens when grace changes you. Because Paul is definitely an evidence or an example of grace. Paul's life was transformed by grace. So here's a couple examples that I want to look at. Um, one of the things that we notice with Paul's life in terms of grace affecting him and changing him, the first thing that we'll notice in verse 1 is that really your life becomes led by God, rather than just simply being led by your own intuitions, your own instincts, your own desires. That's one of the most notable things that begins to happen. Your will changes. Your desires change. Your heart changes. And it was the same thing with Paul. And we see what ends up happening here in verse 1. It says, And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, and I went because of Revelation. So Paul talks about going up to Jerusalem. I think the time frame of this, if you're kind of comparing this into the book of Acts, I think it's probably around Acts chapter 11, verse 29, verse 30, somewhere around there. It was during a time that Paul was going into Jerusalem, bringing a love offering from the, from the churches there in Asia, Asia Minor. He had found out that um, the church in Judea was going through great suffering. There was a famine in the area. Uh, food for less didn't have any food on their shelves. People weren't able to buy falafel. Everybody was in turmoil. So they needed help. So Paul says, you know what we can do? This would be awesome. Let's have the Gentile pagan, ex-pagan believers who trust Jesus, 
let's have you guys give money and I'll, I'll deliver that money to my Jewish brothers. I mean, think about that. That's pretty amazing. Giving money to somebody you've never met before. And not only that, people who might actually not have confidence in your own conversion. They're like, you know what? We love everybody. We love everybody. We'll give money to a bunch of people we've never even met before, nor have we ever even seen their picture on Facebook or anything. We don't know anything about Jews. We'll just give you money. So Paul brings the money down to Jerusalem, down, or actually up to Jerusalem. He brings the money to these guys. During this time, uh, as he walks in there, he brings with him Barnabas. Barnabas was a very close friend of Paul, close travel companion. His name literally means son of encouragement. Uh, Barnabas was an amazing guy. When Paul first got saved, nobody believed that Paul was a Christian. Nobody. I mean, this would, this would be as out of the ordinary as finding out that Osama bin Laden got saved. Honestly, it's the same thing. If you found out, you're like, Osama bin Laden's a Christian now. He's writing books. He's on Oprah. And he wants to preach at Calvary Slow. You'd be like, no. That guy's not a Christian. It's impossible. There's no way. that You don't go from being terrorist to being a follower of Jesus, all right? I mean, you don't go from, like, you know, killing people to somehow singing, yes, Jesus loves me. It just doesn't happen that way. Well, that's what happened with Paul. Paul was a terrorist of his day. But he got saved. And so nobody believed in Paul's conversion. Until this guy Barnabas, who was a Christian, came alongside Paul and says, you know, Paul, they won't believe you, but they'll believe me. I want you to come with me, to stick with me, and I'll make sure that they accept you. Because they'll accept me. Man, we need Barnabases like that today. We need people that are just encouragers, who know how to come alongside people, love on them, and invite them in, and bring them in. That was Barnabas. And so Paul brings Barnabas and his guy Titus. Now, who's Titus? Titus is a Gentile. His name is very Gentile. Um, you won't meet any Jew named Titus, all right? You might meet a Jew named Abraham or Moshe, or, you know what I mean? But you'll never meet a guy named Titus, ever, all right? It just, it just won't name your kids after a pagan deity. Just don't do that. So it's really kind of funny. You read some of these, uh, uh, you know, early New Testament epistles, and some of the names of some of the people, there's a dude named Epaphrodites, all right? All right, can you imagine that? You're Christian, you're like, I love Jesus. What's your name? Epaphrodites. You're named after a god? Yeah, exactly, or goddess, whatever. You know, and the point is, is that God transforms and saves people. So Paul brings Titus. Now, Paul, Titus must really love Paul. Now, think about this. One of the first things that Paul is going to tell Titus is this, listen, I'm bringing you to Jerusalem with me. It's literally religious central. Everybody is very into the Jewish tradition, Jewish culture, and there's a very good likelihood that you're going to be inspected. What does that mean, Paul? Um, inspected for my theology, inspected for what Bible translation I'm using. I mean, what are you talking about? Inspected for circumcision. Okay? Um, now think about this. This is how absolutely crazy this is. Titus is like, so they're going to inspect me to see if I actually have the scars of circumcision. Yeah, exactly. That's what's going to happen. So Titus, obviously loving Paul enough, he says, is there anybody else? If not, I'll go. All right? So Titus ends up going to Jerusalem knowing he's going to be inspected, knowing that there are going to be those who are going to be very suspicious of Titus, whether or not he really is a Christian or not. And the only question that's on their mind is, has he been circumcised? So he brings these guys in, but Paul says he goes up by way of revelation. In other words, God speaks to him. So God is leading Paul by way of revelation. God speaks to Paul, and he follows God by revelation. There's at least two different ways by which God typically leads people. One 
is supernatural, one is natural. Let's start with the natural. The natural is just God moves in just very normal, common type ways. Sometimes we overlook God's ways of leading us because they're just so simple. They're so common. Sometimes God moves in very common, normal ways. But sometimes God moves and leads us in very supernatural ways. I'll tell you very quickly. When my wife and I, Sherry, decided, we were praying about moving up here to San Luis Obispo. Uh, We've been married just about two years uh, we got married in, I think it was like 1990. It was just about 92. We were 20 years old when we got married. We took our second year anniversary here in San Luis Obispo in the area, and we were praying. Maybe God wanted us to come to San Luis. And everything for us about moving to slow started with just simple thought. San Luis came in our mind. That was it. We didn't know what that meant. We didn't know where we would be going. We didn't know what we'd be doing. In fact, we, didn't, we had no idea that even God was necessarily calling us to San Luis. We just knew San Luis Obispo was in our, was in our head. So I thought, you know, I'm going to call, I'm going to make some phone calls to try to find out if I can make some connections with some maybe pastors or leaders up here in San Luis and just kind of find out what's going on. Maybe God wants me to just be praying for the people up in San Luis. I don't know. And so, long story short, we came up again. Um, we took two trips up to San Luis. Our second trip up, we were literally just going around town. We were praying over the entire area. We went for hikes and just walked. And we just prayed all over this town, just wanting to see if God wants us here, we felt like God would lead us and confirm it to us. So one Saturday night, we were sitting in a coffee shop downtown, just drinking coffee, having a great time. And we thought, I think if God wanted us here, he would confirm it to us. And we don't feel like there was any form of like confirmation to our hearts other than a feeling. We just had a feeling. We don't want to go on just a feeling. We want to make sure it's God. So we said, we haven't had any confirmation. Let's uh, go to church in the morning. Let's go home. So we went to a church service in the morning down in Rio Grande, and uh, there's a couple in the church service sitting right in front of us. Afterwards, uh, you know, the guys like, why don't you turn around and say hi to someone? We turn around. Uh, they turn around. We start chatting with them. Turns out the guy grew up in the same area where we were living down in Orange County. He basically says, um, oh, what church do you go to? I said, oh, we go to, you know, church down in Orange County. And I said, we actually worked down there. He looks at his girlfriend, and he's like, are you the couple that was praying about moving up into San Luis? I'm like, <laughs> who are you? Why? I mean, what, what do you mean? And, and then basically, he's like, have you, have you ever met or talked to this guy? And it was a guy that I mixed, actually made a phone call two, three months earlier. I'm like, yeah, I talked to the guy. It was kind of a weird conversation, and that was about it. He's like, I can't believe this. He goes, my girlfriend and I have been praying for three months the guy would bring you here. And my, I look at my wife, and I'm just like, God wants us to move it slow. There's no doubt about it. It's, it's not a question of should we. It's a question of when. Three months later, we moved to slow. We, we, we packed up everything, which was basically, I mean, we've been married for two years. We had an Ikea shelf, and that was it, all right? <laughs> and we drove up, and that was it. I mean, we, we, we didn't have anything. We were super, I mean, it was it. So we moved up here, and really, we started a Bible study in our house. We were just trying to be faithful with what God had given to us. We started a little Bible study in our house, and within, I don't know, eight months, we overgrew our house. And step by step, God just continued to show. This is what I want you to do. I want you to plant a church. I want you to love the people. I want you to feed them the gospel. We've done that. We've done that ever since the day that we moved up here. We've really not changed in terms of principle anything at all from the very beginning. We, we just continue to do the exact same thing that we did. It's just bigger now. And there's three of them. Maybe a fourth. All right? That's it. We do the same thing. And the point that I would make is that was a supernatural example of how God leads. The point that I would make is this, is that one of the evidences of grace is that you basically become a person that becomes concerned about wanting to be follow, following God. It's, it's on your radar screen. If it's not on your radar screen, it's a pretty good example of the fact that maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian. Christians aren't perfect in discerning God's will, but they want to follow God. They want to serve God. They want to be led by God to some degree. The second thing I want you to notice is that accountability replaces autonomy. 
We see this in verse two. It says, uh, I went up because of revelation that was set before me, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul says another reason why I went up to Jerusalem was to basically meet with the leaders of the church to just confirm with them the gospel that I was preaching, to basically submit myself to them. Paul didn't really know these guys. And I don't think Paul was saying, look, I went to them to try to figure out what the gospel was. Paul's saying, I already knew the gospel. God had already revealed it to me. But I wanted to make sure that I'm running this race not in vain. So I want to make sure that we're in one, we're in unity. Now, it's very interesting, but if for some reason in this chapter, if what came of this circumstance that takes place in chapter 2, if the Jerusalem church basically said, the only way Gentile people can be saved is through the rite of circumcision, the church today would look very different. Do you know that? The westernized church would look very different. Either the church would have been split, and there would have been a great divide between westernized church and eastern church, or it would continue to go forward in this very legalistic type of standard. So we can thank God for what God was doing, but Paul basically, as a humble pastor, says, I will allow myself to be checked out, to be examined, to be looked at, and rather than moving in a realm of autonomy, Paul says, I'm part of a community. Christians realize that we are part of a community. And I realize the whole idea of submission, the whole idea of authority, really runs counterculture to the world that we, we live in. We hate that word authority. We fight it. We resist it. But the reality is, is that it is a part of our culture. It is a part of our world, even though we try to not accept it or recognize it. Let me give you an example of where it's at and where I see it. If you don't get this, if you don't figure this out, at some point, uh, you will find yourself in great trouble in what we would typically look at as marriage, the institution of marriage. A lot of people end up getting married thinking that we can still continue to be autonomous beings in marriage. It doesn't work that way. That's why you guys butt heads. That's why you guys fight. That's why you guys are actually happier, you know, five years into marriage when you're apart rather than together. The reason is because you're both trying to be autonomous rather than be a community. What you need to do is you need to learn how to love each other and submit to one another. And learn to realize that there is a headship within that family. There is a sense in which there needs to be a realm of submission where you guys submit yourselves. You make compromises, not in a bad way, but in a way that just simply says we work as a community. We submit ourselves to each other. We're not autonomous. We don't make decisions on our own. We don't have separate bank accounts and keep secrets from each other. We work together as one. We love each other. And everything, everything is brought out into the open. Everything we do is, is literally revealed between both of us. And so we allow ourselves to be examined and cross-checked by each other. My greatest critic, aside from myself, is my wife. In a good way. I need it. There are so many blind spots I have. So many blind spots. And my wife is the best person to speak to me about those things. She sits me down. She tells me where I'm all messed up. And I sometimes usually get defensive at first. But then, at some point, I settle down and I realize I'm the blame. I've got to change this. I've got to fix this. It's a matter of learning to be submissive towards one another in a relational stance where there's community. So the community is basically valued. Christian work ends up happening. One of the evidences of grace is that we begin to find ourselves in a community, not acting as autonomous. The third thing and final thing I want to wrap it up here and look at is sort of the more advanced one is this. That the devotion to the gospel ultimately ends up replacing devotion to culture and tradition. Let me tell you what I mean. Paul was running a race at first, prior to coming to Christ, 
where he was promoting culture. He was promoting his tradition, the traditions of his father. He says that earlier in chapter one. I was very zealous for the traditions of my father. That's what Paul says. So the message that Paul was preaching prior to Christ was a message of tradition, a message that basically would date back ultimately to the oral law rather than the written law until God saved him. When God saved him, Paul's message now became Christ. And so Paul became all about Jesus. And that should be really what our message is all about too. Look at verse three. It says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. So Titus came, even though people were trying to push him into circumcision, it says, even though because he was Greek, he says, yet because of the false brothers who were secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. So Paul's point is this, is that when I brought Titus, this Gentile believer who loves Jesus now, when I brought him into the church, when I brought him into the gathering, there are a group of false believers from the outside that came in. These guys, again, they were Jews that came to faith in Christ. Probably many of them were like Pharisees who were very much into the traditional background of the law. And when they saw Titus, they were like, Titus isn't circumcised. I want you to look at something real fast. Why don't you turn real quick to the book of um, Acts chapter 11. I want to read a passage to you real fast. Acts chapter 11, this might give you a little bit of an insight as to what's happening. Um, It's right after, I'm sorry, Acts chapter, uh, did I say 11? Yeah, Acts chapter 11. Uh, Verse 1, Peter just goes to this house of a guy by the name of Cornelius. He's a complete uh, Gentile, um, and yet while he's preaching to him, uh, the Spirit of God falls upon him. And we're basically told in chapter 10, verse 44, while Peter was still preaching these things and the Holy Spirit fell on him and he began to preach in tongues or speak in tongues, the gifts of the Spirit fell upon him. And basically Peter makes his recognition that I can't believe this, that God has shown favor to Gentiles and he's given them the Holy Spirit just like he gave us. And, and Peter's blown away by this. He, can't, he, can't, his, he knows his eyes aren't betraying him. He knows that what he's watching is something brand new. It's never happened before in the history of mankind. God has literally shown favor to those outside of Judaism. Absolutely astounding. Absolutely astounding. Peter's blown away by this. And then verse 1 of chapter 11 says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, they heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. It says, And so Peter, when he went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Peter, imagine that. I mean, Peter comes back to church next day after hanging out with, you know, this guy Cornelius, and they're criticizing him. They're like, what are you doing? We hear rumors. We saw tweets. We heard bad stuff about you. Someone's been making phone calls, Peter. Here's, what's go- here's what the rumors that's going around. It's, we hear that you've gone in to hang out with uncircumcised men. Peter says in verse 4, But Peter began to explain, and he told them this order. He says, I was in a city of Joppa praying. Trance fell upon me. I was in a vision. Basically, God says, go to this guy's house. Tell him about Jesus. I did. I told him about Jesus. And all of a sudden, while I was still telling him about Jesus, Holy Spirit fell upon him. He started speaking in tongues. Everything that happened on the day of Pentecost happened to this guy in his doorway. All right? I, I I, I didn't make it happen. I didn't, you know, hit him on the head. I didn't have a white jacket in my hand that swacked him on the head with it. I didn't have a handkerchief that was blessed. I didn't have a prayer rug that I had to anoint with oil. All I did is preach the gospel. That's all I did. And he spoke in tongues. 
Something miraculous happened. So here's what it goes on to say in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I should stand in God's way? When they heard this, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is absolutely huge to the church. I mean, they're still figuring this out. So let me ask you. Do you think from that point forward, immediately, everybody was like, oh, let's go hug a Gentile. Let's have a pork sandwich with a Gentile. Let's invite him into our house. Let's celebrate that they're not circumcised. No. In the same way, after the Emancipation Proclamation, blacks and whites in the South were hanging out and having barbecues together. You understand? It took years for this stuff to finally work its way out. Do you know that in the South, still, still, there's prejudices? I mean, we live in California. We're all about PC, right? But to imagine still in the area where slavery was most affected, it's not the way it is here. Blacks don't have the exact same types of freedoms. They can't just walk down the street. If a black dude and a white girl started going out and hanging out, they're still going to get dirty, nasty looks because... Those cultural things go really deep. And that's what was happening in the church. That's what Paul was fighting against. So take a look at this. Paul describes these guys as troublers. The actual Greek word that he uses is, um, it's a Greek word, pseudo-dedelphia. Pseudo means false. Uh, Adelphia means like Philadelphia, a brother. So he's saying these are false brothers. Probably a play on words. Here's why. I think it's kind of a play on words. I think these guys were looking at Titus and saying he's not a brother. Paul's like, mm, want to know who the real non-brothers are? you guys you guys are not accepting Titus as a brother because he's not circumcised but you're the ones that are in the wrong because you're actually adding something to Jesus you're telling Titus that he's not part of the fam you're not welcoming him you're not loving him because there's cultural distinctives distinctions you're not embracing him so let's take a look real quickly at some of the examples maybe why this is the case um, take a look at this whole idea of like Judaism, the law, Gentiles. I think it's important for us to understand something about this. Um, in traditional Judaism, there were different types of laws that were to be adhered to. I'll give you an example of two of them. One was the moral law. The moral law, the person who kept or adhered to the moral law, they were basically set apart ethically. This is stuff like don't steal, don't cheat, uh, don't um, commit adultery. So those who adhered to these laws, they were set apart ethically, all right? Then there was also the ceremonial law. In the ceremonial law, these would be things like kosher laws, type of foods that you can eat, type of foods that you could mix with each other, certain types of clothing that you had to wear, certain types of clothing you couldn't wear with other certain types of clothing. Um, uh, the ceremony of circumcision. The adherents of these laws basically were separated culturally, in other words, this developed a cultural distinctiveness and a cultural identity for the Jewish people while they were living as a tribal people in Israel. As a tribal people in Israel, God wanted to set them apart culturally. And the way that God did this, he gave them laws that said, follow these laws and you will be set apart. The reality is, is that all of the laws were nothing more than a shadow. They looked forward to the coming again of Jesus, or the coming of Jesus, in which Christ would one day come. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 goes into some details on this. I'm just going to read you a very quick verse. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse uh, 
10 verse 1 says this, the law was but a shadow of good things to come. Later on in verse 9, he says this, he says, he who does away with the first, or the law, first law, in order to establish the second, but that by, he says, and by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the writer of Hebrews basically says, all of the laws that were followed by the Jews to separate them culturally, to separate them uh, ethically, were ultimately a foreshadow of Jesus, where one day Jesus would come, and the reason why they needed to be set apart ethically, because they sinned, they needed help. But the reason why they also needed to be set apart um, culturally was because God wanted to call out a, a unique people for himself. But all of this was fulfilled in Jesus. So now, in Jesus, the argument of the New Testament is this, what we don't need is what we don't, we don't need to keep going back to these ceremonial laws to be made right with God, we just go back to Jesus, who's the fulfillment of these things. And thereby doing these things, we actually fulfill the laws. Let me give an example. If some of the ethical laws, the moralistic laws, were say, for example, don't steal, the best way that you fulfill not stealing is by being generous with what you have. So not only are you just stopping stealing, but you're undoing the evil that stealing does by now being generous and giving stuff away. Let me give you another example. What if laws that had to do with don't hate your brother, don't kill someone? Well, killing comes from a heart that's full of hatred. So how do you undo or fulfill hatred? You just stop being violent, stop being hateful, stop being spiteful? No. You love your neighbor as yourself. You forgive those in the same way that you've been forgiven. So like, how do I do that? <laughs> you need Jesus. You need Jesus. How do I live it out? You need Jesus. You need Jesus in everything. That's the point. I want to talk about two different types of slavery and wrap this up. The first type of slavery I'm going to describe is moralistic slavery. Because one of the things you need to understand is that Paul's big concern is found, like we just read in verse 5. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 5. He says, um, actually about verse, yeah, verse 5. He says, to them... We did not yield in submission even for a moment, but just before that, he says, these people came in order to bring us into slavery. So here's, here's a strange juxtaposition. On the one hand, Jesus has brought about liberty and freedom. On the other hand, there are those claiming to be followers of Jesus that are actually trying to enslave you, trying to bring you back into slavery. So Paul's main concern is that we fall back into a form of slavery which Jesus sought to set us free from. Okay, so what you need to hear is the various types of slavery. The first type of slavery is moralistic slavery. Here's what I mean. Let me define what I mean. Because that's what's going on here. The slavery that these false teachers are bringing about is not immoral slavery. They're not telling people to go back into drugs or to take meth or to get drunk or to go to the temple prostitutes in the local town. That's not what they're telling them. And to become enslaved to drugs, enslaved to sex again. What, he, what they're basically saying, what we want you to do is we want you to have Jesus plus circumcision. So here's some of the ways that I think that we tend to do this today. Slavery is anything that we depend upon to bring about our source of joy, our life, and our identity. Here's some of the ways by which we also have unhealthy dependencies upon things of Jesus plus, here's what we do. Jesus plus our devotions, 
We're like, I need Jesus, and the way that I feel right with God is I gotta read my Bible every day at six o'clock. If I don't read my Bible every day at six o'clock, I feel really bad, I feel horrible, I feel guilty, I should be doing better, I'm a really bad Christian. Or Jesus Plus, going to prayer meeting at 5.30 in the morning. And the mornings that you go to the prayer meeting, you feel really good, the moments you fail, you don't wake up in time, you're super tired, you feel lousy, you feel far from God, you feel like God hates you, you feel like God's a little bit upset with you. Something happens throughout the day, you get a ticket, you're like, ah, I knew I'd get a ticket because I didn't go to prayer this morning. I'm living under the guilt of not going to prayer. So you're adding Jesus plus to all these things. Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Jesus plus having a good worship experience. You know, I actually talk to people sometimes who are like, you know, I feel so right with God when I go to church and I sing and I feel God. I feel God. I had a guy years ago come up to me. He's from a more Pentecostal type background. He comes walking in and he looks at y'all and he's like, this church is dead. You guys don't jump, you don't sing, you don't clap, you don't you know, jump around, swing from chandeliers like my church does. And uh, it's, it's really unfortunate. I'm like, so what's your point? What, I mean, what do you, what's your point? Are you here just to criticize the people that Jesus loves and purchased with his blood? What, what's your point? Uh, he's like, well, it'd be great if they were walking straight with God. Like, so, so straight with God for you is Jesus plus swinging from chandeliers, Jesus plus shouting, Jesus plus dancing. It gets absurd. Is there anything wrong with reading your Bible every morning? No, do it. You should read your Bible every day. But not as a means by which you draw right relationship with God from. Should we pray? Absolutely. Gather with groups of people and pray. Love Jesus. Worship God. Indulge in going deep with Christ. But don't use it as a crutch by which you are made right with God. I know actually church, there's a church on the Central Coast that's basically like, they actually look, it's Jesus plus always having to go out and witness. I actually know people, I've had people tell me that this church actually looks up on you to find out how many people did you lead to the Lord this past week? How many did you lead? None? You need to be trying harder. Absolutely. God honest truth. So people walk away feeling really guilty. I didn't lead anybody to the Lord this week. I'm a horrible Christian. Yes, you are. Or, I led five people to the Lord. You know what ends up happening? We become really prideful, just like Satan. Anytime we add Jesus plus something, we actually take away from the gospel. We're actually saying Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough to carve out my identity. Jesus is not enough to give me security in him. I need Jesus plus something else. So moralism is really a new slavery. Listen to what George Whitfield once said, great preacher, during the time of the Great Awakening. He said, before you can speak peace to your heart, you must not only be sick of your original and actual sin, but you must be made sick of your righteousness, of all your duties and performances. Therefore, must a deep conviction before you can be brought out of yourself righteousness out of your self-righteousness it is the last idol to be taken out of the heart his whole point is that you got to recognize there are evil deeds that we do that we can be enslaved to but there are also moralistic type things that we can look to the problem with morality is it looks so good it looks better than sinfulness right and so what ends up happening is a lot of christians begin to trust in their moralism as being the means by which they're made right with god I don't drink, 
I don't smoke cigarettes, and those that do, it's too bad, they're going to hell, I'll pray for them. It's very arrogant. Does the Bible say anything about smoking? Absolutely nothing. I mean, do I have to like smoking? I don't like smoking at all. I mean, at my point, it would be like, if you're going to smoke, smoke a pipe with tobacco. It smells really good, and it looks really cool. Grow a long beard. It looks really cool. But, but, but to say that you can't smoke is, is exactly what I'm talking about. It's adding to the Bible. It's adding to the Bible. Smoke a cigar. This doesn't sound so feminine. Cigarette. Just a cigar. Drop the et off and just do the cigar, all right? Just be manly about it. So the point that I would make is this, is you can't add to the Bible. The Bible says nothing about smoking. Does it mean you have to like it? No. If you're a parent and your kid's under 18, can you tell them not to? Of course. You're the king of the house. That's fine. But do you have to like it? No. But can you go out and say, you can't do it? No. You can't. Because you're adding to the finished work of Jesus. You're saying you can be accepted in our tribe if you love Jesus and you don't smoke. If you love Jesus and you don't drink. If you love Jesus and you don't drink light beer. If you don't, if you, you know, and we go on and we have all these prerequisites by which to accept people into the church. It's just simply wrong. It's morality. It's not the gospel. The second form of cultural slavery, slavery is culture. Let me give you ways to look at this. I've mentioned this a lot of times in the past. One of the best ways to kind of look at Christianity is this. Uh, the Bible speaks of both principles and methods. Principles are timeless. They never change. They're universal. And they apply to every single culture, culture civilization, and throughout all ages. Th- these are things like the Bible talks about uh, its inerrancy. The Bible talks about it being the inspired word of God. The Bible talks about singing a joyful song to God. The Bible, so we want to sing. The Bible talks about preaching the gospel. So we want to preach the gospel. So here's the point. We want to be faithful to these principles to preach the gospel. But here's what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't tell us how to preach. It doesn't tell us how long to preach. Some of you are like, we certainly shouldn't be preaching over an hour. Well, that's what we do here. I mean, it's how we interpret it. It's just a method. Um, the point that I would make is, is it, we're told to sing. We're not told how to sing. We're not told what types of instruments to use. So we feel because culture changes, culture adapts, that the gospel can adapt to the culture. So that's where methods come in. Methods will change. Principles never change. Principles will always be the same. The principle of the gospel will never be changed, modified, edited, or redlined. But the reality of methods should change, should change based upon the culture to which you're reaching out to. I'll give you an example. I'm going to El Salvador on Wednesday. Thursday night, I'm probably going to be hitting the road, preaching at a bunch of different places. And one of the things that I've learned in the past, that anytime you go to El Salvador, anytime you're going to preach in a church, you, you can't dress like this. You can't wear jeans. They don't want you to wear just regular shirts or t-shirts. Um, they want you to wear slacks and a shirt that's tucked in. And I think sometimes even a tie. But the b- bottom line is this, I, I don't like ties. I don't like tucking my shirts in, and I absolutely despise any type of slacks. Um, and the, re- the reality is, is that I love the people in El Salvador, and I love those to whom I get this opportunity to preach. Am I okay with changing my clothing so I can preach the gospel? Absolutely. I love these people. I know people that go to Jews and preach the gospel to them, and they wear yarmulkes because that's Jewish culture. Is it okay to wear a yarmulke? Absolutely. Let me put it this way. If I were to go to El Salvador 
and say, the way to be made right with God is you've got to worship like us. And, you know, they, they worship. And they have, what are the things called? Like maraca? What you call it? Like, I don't know what it's called. Yeah, whatever. You know, it makes a like, scratching sound. Anyways, they, they have those all over the place. And usually it's like these young kids playing them. It's rad. There's so many people on stage singing and playing. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. But it's very different than here. Imagine if I were to go in there and be like, look, if you guys really want to be made right with Jesus, the way to do church is you need to have kind of emo worship, a guy that has product in his hair, tight jeans, a German with no hair, and you got to make sure that some of the other musicians all have tats because that's the way to do things right. Body piercings, that's just the way that we do things at slow, and that's the way things should be done universally. These are methods. You see, it's okay to use these things in various cultural contexts. It's not okay to export cultural context and say, in order for you to be right with God, you've got to do it this way. That's what was happening. As the Jews were saying, as a cultural distinctiveness, we as Jews who've been circumcised and keep and adhere to kosher laws, we're telling Gentiles that you've got to do the same. Tradition. Liberals tend to take principles and methods and chuck them out. Fundamentalists typically take principles and methods and make them both binding over all times. It's one of the reasons why sometimes you can go into some churches and, and they, they refuse. I mean, here's, here's an interesting thing. You have younger churches that are like all about, you know, instruments like drums and guitars and stuff like that. And older churches that are like all into organs and they, they refuse to get away from an organ. And the problem is, is that you have the older generations that are like, organs are the only way to worship God. We, we know after all, that's how Paul worshiped. That's how Jesus worshipped, all right? He, he sat down and Peter played the organ. And that's how we did it. But what, what oftentimes gets forgotten is the organ was actually taken out of the bars. I mean, it, it actually was taken out of bars. John Wesley, Charles, Charles Wesley, read it back in the time. These guys actually went into bars and they preached the gospel in the bars. And the barroom music back in the day of the 1700s became sort of the main modern type of music that formed modern hymns. I mean, we forget that type of stuff. But here's my point, is that really what you have are cultural battles going back and forth. And so some people would say, well, younger generation, they're all into their, their, their culture. Well, so are the older generation. It's just an older, outdated culture. You're, you're just saying your older, outdated culture is better than our younger culture. What you're left with is two people fighting. They can't find any type of commonality or love. What's better is to say, look, it's cool if you worship with an organ. It's cool if you worship with a piano. It's cool if you want to do hymns exclusively. It's cool if you want to have, you know, a guy with a tattoo playing music. It's cool if you have a drum. But it's okay. We all love Jesus. We're all one family. We all worship the same God. It's absolutely okay. I tell people this all the time. They come to Calvary slowly. The music's way too loud. I hate it. Well, you know, Grace is an amazing church. Pastor Tim Thule is a dear brother friend of mine. Love the guy. Preaches Jesus. Go to his church. Go to there. They have an entirely different type of music get going on there. All right, Trinity Presbyterian, another group of people. Love Jesus. Scott Peterson, one of the leaders there. Love the guy. Absolutely loves Jesus. You're like, I don't like how long Brian preaches. It's way too long. My good friend, Tom O'Leary, absolutely loves Jesus. Absolutely loves Jesus. I've literally been in prayer meetings with him where he's wept over people who don't know Jesus on the Central Coast praying that they come to know Jesus. There's great churches to go to if this is not your cultural thing. That's perfectly okay. At the end of the day, a lot of times people like Christians don't agree on anything. You know, the reality is a lot of times we actually do. 
We believe, we agree on the essentials. We all agree that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose again from the dead. Jesus ascended to the Father. And that Jesus is going to come back again someday. We all agree on that. Should I rejoice that Mount Brook is growing massively? They have this humongous building that is built. Or should I feel bummed because we're not as big? We should rejoice. Should I rejoice that Tim Thule downtown is pastoring and leading Grace Church? Is doing great things downtown. Great things are happening. Absolutely. We should rejoice. We should be happy. Because at the end of the day, we're not separate teams. We're one team. Jesus is the team captain. We love Jesus. We serve Jesus. We have one God. We actually have one pastor. His name's Jesus. Peter says he's the chief shepherd and overseer of all of our souls. I want to wrap this up. I'm almost done. The point that I want to make is this. Is that at the end of the day, culture's not ultimate. Culture's not ultimate. Moralism's not ultimate. Traditions are not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. We look to him. We seek him. We desire him. So here's the point. If, say, 50 years from now, we're still going, and I'm toothless, and I have a long beard, and I smoke a pipe. (laughs) If, If we're still going as a church... And Stipik's up here, he's still this tall, and he's just playing his music. Exactly the type of music we have today, and still wearing jeans from Forever 21. And that's it. <laughs> 50 years from now, if that's us. And now we're all like in our 80s, and we're like, this is the only way to worship Jesus. It's the only way. It's the only way. Then we've become the Archie Bunkers. We've become the people that have now made, become grumpy. We've made tradition priority. We've made culture Lord. There's only one Lord. It's Jesus. There's only one way to the Father. Jesus. There's only one way to be made right with God. Jesus alone, not plus anything. This is so essential. To reverse it leads to slavery. You become a slave. Let me just say this. God loves you too much to let you remain as a slave. That's why Jesus even says to his own disciples, I don't call you servants anymore. You're my brothers. Paul says he's adopted us as sons and daughters into his family. The whole point of Jesus coming into this world as he lays aside the culture of heaven. Steps into a whole foreign culture, sinfulness, but he never sinned. He took on a body for one reason, one reason, to feel pain. To the fullest weight, to its fullest extent, ultimately to die. Jesus is the ultimate missionary who left his culture, came into this world, kept the principles straight, but learned a whole new method. And the gospel, as it continues to go forth, needs to remain flexible in its methods and static in its principles. The principles should never change. The message should never change. The gospel will always be the same. But we need to remain open and flexible to different methods. 
Will the methods of this church change? Will new ministries start that I have to agree with and love? Let me tell you something. There's a lot of things that go on in this church that I, like, are, are just totally foreign to me. I'll tell you one of them. We got a gal in the church. She loves to quilt. She loves to make quilts for people that are hurting and cancer patients and bless them and serve them. Am I into that? Let me ask you, do I look like a quilter? <laughs> no. I am absolutely not a quilter at all. I have no desire to quilt. I have, there's no like hidden desire in the back of my mind like I really just desire to be a quilter. I don't at all. So my point is that even though I'm probably never going to show up to that class or be a part of that. It's awesome what God's doing. Because it's taking something and redeeming it and using it in a way to bless other people so that the gospel can go forth. Paul says, to the Jews, I become a Jew. To the Gentiles, I become a Gentile. Why? Why does Paul keep the flexibility open? Why should we keep flexible? It's because at the end of the day, we love Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we want others to love Jesus. Young 14, 15, 16-year-old kids start getting saved in here as they are, and they start making their own music, and they start playing it here on Sunday mornings, leading worship. Are we all going to love it? Probably not. Some of us are going to just think, this stinks. This is horrible music. Should that be an opportunity now to gripe and complain and get all bitter and chapped and spent out, bent out of shape? Or should it be an opportunity now to actually rejoice in the Jesus and rejoice in the gospel? As long as Jesus is central, as long as the gospel is going forth, as long as people are coming to know Jesus and people are being saved, that's really what's ultimate at the end of the day. We want Jesus to be exalted. We want people's lives to be transformed. What we're going to do right now is we're going to transition into worship. We're going to sing to God. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to the Lord. If you're one of our guests here, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is an opportunity for us who love this church, who are part of this church, part of this family, to give back generously back to God because we love him. Because God is a generous giver, we want to give back generously. We're also going to sing. We're going to sing joyfully. The Bible tells us to sing joyfully. We love God. We can sing by raising our hands, standing, getting down on our knees and worshiping God. It's perfectly okay to just get Pentecostal. It's all right. It's all right. We love Jesus. We love them. We love everyone. But the point that I would make is that what we want to make sure is that Jesus is central. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus, period, alone. Jesus is our mediator to God. We love Jesus. It's Jesus we go to to repent from sin. It's Jesus we go to as we partake of the communion like we're going to do today. As we remember what he did for us on the cross. So as you partake of communion, make certain that you're taking it, like Paul said, not unworthily. Meaning you confess sin. You ask God to wash you and cleanse you. And as you partake of the communion, you remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. You remember the great meal that we're going to one day share with Jesus in heaven. And you pray. You ask God to make certain that your life is gospel-centered. Focused on Jesus. Okay? Amen? Is that the type of church we want to be? Gospel focused? Good. I'm going to pray. If you're a parent here and you got your kids in the back, please make sure you go relieve some of the uh, workers back there who've been watching your kids faithfully for the past hour and a half. I'm going to pray. We'll worship. And then we'll dismiss you guys. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We want to give our worship and our praise and our honor to you even right now as we give our tithes and our offerings to you. As we confess sin to you. And as we partake of communion together. Lord, we remember... Jesus on the cross, leaving the culture of heaven to take upon flesh and blood, to die for us in order to redeem us. The shadow, what was foreshadowed, ultimately became reality, materialized. Jesus, God, 
incarnated for us to seek and save us. So we fix our eyes now upon you, Jesus, and we worship you.